Welcome everyone to the inaugural episode of IBD Drive Time. I'm Raymond Cross, Professor of Medicine and Director of the IBD Program at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. I'm very happy to introduce my co-host for this series, Millie Long, who's an Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Gastroenterology and Hepatology Fellowship Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The goals of this podcast are to educate gastroenterologists and advanced practice providers on the most up-to-date research in IBD, as well as management dilemmas in our most complex uh, cases. We envision that this would be a 20-minute um, podcast and that providers could even listen to this on the drive to or drive home from work therein. It's the IBD drive time. For our first podcast, Millie and I are going to go over two uh, very important studies that were recently presented at UEG, the Serene UC study, as well as the Stardust trial. Future topics may include COVID-19 vaccination in patients with IBD, the role of dietary therapy in Crohn's disease, and novel surgical approaches in the management of Crohn's disease. So now I'd like to introduce Millie Long, and we're going to discuss the Serene UC study. So uh, welcome, Millie. Thanks, Ray. This is going to be fun. We're going to have a, a, a good bit of time here on our so-called drive to talk about two important studies that I think have actually kind of changed my practice. So let's see if, if you agree. Let me first just do a brief overview of the Serene UC study, and then we can kind of run through what our thoughts are on it. Um, you know, I actually thought that this study might turn out in a different direction. And in my clinical practice, and you see, I felt like using higher dose was maybe uh, improving some of my outcomes. And so this study sought to prove that. And so what they did is they did a randomized control trial where they randomized patients with ulcerative colitis to either high dose, and by high dose, I mean very high dose, even starting with 360 milligrams um, induction as compared to standard induction. And then individuals were uh, re-randomized in terms of maintenance. Um, and in maintenance, they could be in either a weekly arm or a uh, therapeutic drug monitoring guided arm or a standard dosing arm. So what were the results? For the induction, there was actually no difference. So clinical remission at the end of induction was 13% in the high dose arm and 11% in the standard arm. So it really didn't actually improve either clinical remission or the endoscopic outcomes there post induction. For the maintenance in this study, individuals that were randomized to the, to the therapeutic drug monitoring arm were actually increased on dosing if they had a level less than 10 of adalimumab, or if they had a rectal bleeding subscore uh, greater than or equal to one. So in other words, they had some relapse symptoms or their level was less than 10. And then the other two arms, of course, were standard dosing or weekly dosing. And essentially what the outcomes showed is that um, there was really overall uh, for those who are on weekly adalimumab, uh, approximately 40% um, ended up in clinical remission as compared to 29% in the every other week. And this didn't meet um, statistical significance, but it was close. And then in the therapeutic drug monitoring arm, about 37% ended up in clinical remission. And so uh, overall, these arms were very similar for maintenance. So as, in essence, we have a study that high-dose induction didn't change immediate outcomes. And then in the long term, particularly the weekly adalimumab was really not any different than the therapeutic drug monitoring guided adalimumab. So 
I mentioned that this changed my practice. I want to throw it back to Ray. Did this change your practice or what are, what are your thoughts of how this impacted uh, your management of ulcerative colitis? Millie, I think we all thought that um, adalimumab was a fine drug for UC that it was just underdosed and being responsive to um, you know, key account leaders' opinions on this, this study was designed to test that. And as you said, despite giving very high doses of induction, uh, doses of adalimumab, it really didn't have a meaningful difference on short-term response rates. I practice proactive therapeutic drug monitoring anyway, and certainly use reactive testing as well. So pragmatically for me, it doesn't really change what I do for maintenance. What would have changed for me would have been the dosing for induction. And and that's not going to be possible with these results. And pragmatically giving that much drug isn't going to happen. Right. And I think for me, again, high dose isn't necessary for induction and for maintenance. An easy button, if someone isn't perfect, going to weekly adalimumab um, is comparable to doing therapeutic drug monitoring. And so, you know, I think that there are a couple of different ways to handle the maintenance data. Um, But overall, so remember, this was a kind of pick the winners design and that only responders were randomized into maintenance. And so remember that it was uh, really relatively low numbers that reached um, clinical remission um, after induction. And then those that responded of those about, uh, you know, anywhere from 35% to as high as 40% were in remission at a year. So I think keeping those numbers in mind is also helpful. It helps you to understand where this drug um, may fall in terms of positioning and efficacy for our patients. So Millie, um, I just want to follow up on on your summary. So there's some confusion about the overall results and then the the integrated results, which included a sub-study of of Japan. Can you clarify that for the listeners? Sure, absolutely. So I mentioned that the main results for maintenance actually did not reach statistical significance for weekly adalimumab maintenance as compared to every other week. However, there was also a separate study performed in Japan, and once those results were integrated, there was a significant difference between weekly and every other week. Um, So that's where those data come in. Now, granted, that was a separate study that was integrated, but overall, it kind of demonstrated the same theme of about a 10% delta between um, the weekly and the every other week. So, Millie, to follow up on that, um, now that the integrator analysis show that there is a significant difference for maintenance, you are not a proactive drug monitoring advocate. So, in your practice, are you going to automatically place your patients on adalimumab weekly for maintenance if they respond to induction? I think I'm going to have a very low threshold to do that um, based on these data. You know, in my clinical practice, frankly, um, I do use adalimumab and ulcerative colitis. Uh, you know, I think that there are, are, are many instances where this could be a good drug. You know, many of my patients have a preference for an injectable agent as compared to an IV agent. And if they have more moderate um, disease, then I think adalimumab is a, is a reasonable option. Most of them end up on weekly anyway. I think this is what I found in my practice. And so I think, again, just having that low threshold to get there. I will say, and I don't know if this is true for you, Ray, but more recently, I've even been having a lot of insurance difficulties with just getting weekly adalimumab. So, you know, there's always a fight there um, as well, but I try to be prepared and have data such as these at hand. Well, yeah, I think this is a common problem around the country and maybe one of our future podcasts will have David Rubin come and teach us how to uh, use Twitter 
to try to shame payers into paying for things. But yeah, any kind of dose escalation, we're really, really struggling, we're really struggling with. So I guess one plug for proactive monitoring may be that, you know, in this study, you could avoid dose escalation in approximately one in five patients. So that may be one reason to want to implement this for adalimumab in your clinical practice. But I don't think Millie and I are ever going to agree on that. Millie, you've already told us how you position adalimumab in practice. So my sense is other than lower threshold to escalate, probably not going to change what you do very much. No, I mean, I think you and I practice pretty similarly, Ray, and and likely similarly to many of the folks out there listening. If I have a really severe UC patient who is biologic naive, I am going to use infliximab in that patient. I just, you know, obviously it has our best level of data in acute severe ulcerative colitis. I think that when you're in a realm and the outpatient world and you have various options um, for treatment, I, I have a shared decision-making discussion um, with my patients. But you know, one of the data we didn't talk about is we also have the varsity trial that showed that um, vetalizumab was about 9% greater in terms of efficacy as compared to adalimumab. And, and so you know, I think that that's something to consider. And when you're talking to a patient about efficacy and safety, I think vetalizumab has become much more a first-line agent for me for a moderate patient out there. Um, however, you've got to also give the patient a drug that they're going to be able to take and they're going to have, be able to continue to use consistently. And so for patients who travel a lot, uh, for patients who aren't able to come in for infusions, we got to think about other options. And that could be um, adalimumab. It certainly could also be ustekinumab, which also obviously has quite efficacious data in ulcerative colitis as well. And as a reminder, is a one-time IV infusion followed by acute eight-week maintenance injection. That how you think about it too, right? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think in your less sick outpatient, we should try to pick the safest drug first, and and that is ustekinumab and vetalizumab. I don't think that's debatable. Um, but depending on where you live, these products, these drugs may not be positioned within the formulary of the payer in such a way that you can use them first line. And frankly, adalimumab is often positioned in that area. So I think in a patient who doesn't have a compelling reason to be on one of these agents. If they say adalimumab's approved and they're not that ill as an outpatient, I'll, I'll absolutely give it. I tend to use combination therapy in that situation to try to enhance the PK, but given the serene UC results, I'm not sure that that's even the right strategy, although the guidelines are to use combination therapy in general. No, and, and I was actually going to bring that up myself. I, I think you and I, um, while we differ on um, proactive therapeutic drug monitoring routinely, we, I think we practice very similar from that perspective that, you know, I think the data are fairly clear that with a TNF, uh, combination therapy with an immunomodulator can improve outcomes, particularly for induction and, and frankly, maintenance of remission early in the course of disease. And so the idea, I often will use combination therapy um, up front, get the patient into a deep clinical remission, and then I'll think about Um, backing off, uh, potentially dropping the immunomodulator. And I think that many of the risks that we all know about associated with immunomodulators are more with long-term use. And so the idea of using it in the right place up front, I I think is is very important. And so I just want to emphasize that to me, the thiopurine is not dead. I still use thiopurines. I know you use a little bit more methotrexate, but I know you use thiopurines too. Yeah, of course. Millie, two more questions. Um, one, any critiques of this study? Any any major flaws that you can really point out to the listeners? Well, it really wasn't 
powered for the TDM arm. And I just want to emphasize that that was more of an exploratory arm um, from that perspective. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that we can't make firm conclusions surrounding therapeutic drug monitoring. But but overall, I mean, I think this was a robust randomized control trial. I think that it, it doesn't have the combo therapy piece that I think uh, may improve efficacy associated with this therapy. And so that's one aspect that I think is missing. We may see better numbers if we're using, you know, a thiopurine associated with the adalimumab in terms of this first year. But I think that it it is important data. These are um, data that you can also argue with insurance companies, um, particularly the integrated analysis um, for your weekly adalimumab. And one thing I forgot to mention in the introduction, this podcast is all also going to give us a chance to learn a little bit about our faculty. And so the qu- last question for Millie before we talk about Stardust is tell the audience something about you that they may not know, Millie. Oh, and by the way, Ray just surprised me with that question. So I've got to figure out what uh, is going to come to me at the top of my head. I'm fairly an open book. I will say I am a big swimmer in in the real world. And so I really do enjoy um, swimming. And with some of our other IBD colleagues, I've done uh, a few triathlons. And so people may not know that Maria Abreu is an avid triathlete as well. And so there's a nice little community of IBD people who enjoy those types of things. I think Millie's being a, a little too humble. She was a division one collegiate uh, swimmer. So a little bit more than just an avid swimmer, I would say. Oh, and Ray, watch out. That question may be coming back to you after Stardust. <laughs> okay. Before we talk about Stardust, I just want to thank Advances in IBD and the Gastroenterology Learning Network who are supporting this podcast. Uh, Speaking of advances in IBD, there is an upcoming virtual regional program in Houston on June 19th. Um, And in two weeks, we plan to have our next podcast, which is going to focus on pregnancy and IBD. And now I'm going to turn it over to Millie to ask me about Stardust. We had fun selecting these two studies from UEG that we thought might make the biggest difference. Ray, give us an overview of, of Stardust. Um, what happened in this study? What was it? Our, our drive time participants may not be aware. So thanks, Millie. So Stardust is a complex um, trial design. So it's a phase 3B randomized controlled trial of patients with moderate to severe Crohn's that failed either conventional therapy or one biologic. And they define moderate to severe, not only based on symptoms, but all of these patients had a baseline endoscopy and using the SCSCD, which is one of the standardized endoscopic scoring systems, they had to have a score of greater than equal to three to be included in the study. The the study was designed for 48 weeks and the primary endpoint was an endoscopic endpoint of a 50% or more reduction in the SES CD score from baseline. Uh, 500 patients were included and they received standard intravenous weight-based induction dosing of ustekinumab followed by 90 milligrams at week eight. At week 16, responders, and the responders were were 88% of the patients responded, which is really striking. But at 16 weeks, patients were randomized to either a treat-to-target arm or a standard of care arm. So in the standard of care arm, patients that responded received 90 milligrams of ustekinumab every 12 weeks for maintenance. So that is different than the maintenance dosing we use in the U.S. And then during the follow-up from week 12 to 48, 
clinicians could adjust the dose of ustekinumab based on their clinical intuition, whether it be symptoms, biomarkers, et cetera, um, and they could escalate the dosing. The treat-to-target group underwent a week 16 colonoscopy. If they had a 25% or more decline in the SESCD from baseline, they received ustekinumab every 12 weeks. If they had less than a 25% improvement, they then went to 90 milligrams every eight weeks. At the follow-up visit, if they had um, a CDAI score of 220 or higher, or a CRP that was above 10 or a CalPRO above 250, they could then escalate. So if they were on 12 weeks, they went to eight weeks, eight weeks went to four weeks. If they were already on four weeks, they exited the study. It's complicated, but, but so important because this is one of the first kind of treat to target studies outside the TNF class, right? And it's among the first to use endoscopy to help us with kind of uh, stratifying into those groups. Yeah, to my knowledge, this is the first one that used endoscopy to stratify uh, the treat to target. So we're all, most of our listeners, I think, will be familiar with the COM study that um, Jean-Frederick Colombel is the lead author in that. And, and they used a combination of symptoms and biomarkers to escalate adalimumab and Crohn's disease, starting with monotherapy, escalating to weekly if needed, and then adding an immune suppressant. And that study did show superior endoscopic outcomes compared to the standard of care treatment. So this is a little different in that they're using the endoscopy at week 16 to start the dose escalation if needed. But that might be something we do in practice, right? I mean, you know, we often are using a treat to target approach and I kind of want to see how my patient is after they've been induced and use that to help to determine, you know, what to do next. And so I think this is probably about right, wouldn't you say, for when you might relook in practice? Um, Yes or no. I I think um, often what we do in clinical practice is at 60 or 90 days, we reassess based on symptoms and biomarkers. And if they're not doing great, we're already adjusting. Mm -hmm. This is using the endoscopy first and then adjusting based on symptoms and biomarkers after. I think in real life, it's more of a hybrid approach, right? Where you're, you know, you're adjusting even before that 16 week or uh, 26-week colonoscopy. Um, so it's a little bit of a, a mix, but mm-hmm. this is what we do in real life. Well, okay. You've, you've baited us with that complicated design. What were the results? What happened? So the primary outcome was endoscopic improvement. And in the treat to target arm, about 38% hit that benchmark. And it was about 30% in the standard of care arm, which was not significant using non-randomized imputation. When they looked at it using last observation carried forward, uh, the results were a little better for the treat-to-target arm. It was 40% and about 31% in the standard of care, which was statistically significant. So there was about a 10% delta for endoscopic response in the dose escalation arm. If you look at Um, Clinical parameters, they're really, again, quite striking. I mean, clinical response rates at 48 weeks were actually in favor of the standard of care, 78% to 68%. Remission in 70% in standard of care versus 61% in the treat-to-target 
this is another interesting uh, facet of this. At 48 weeks of responders, which is the majority, about 60% of patients were able to, to do well just on the every 12-week dosing of ustekinumab. So I think in and of itself, that's an important take-home message of this. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think overall, you know, results were similar, um, but, but yeah, I don't think that this is, nor do I think you think that this means treat to target doesn't work. I think treat to target is effective and does work, but this drug's different, right? I mean, so this right. isn't a TNF. And so what do you think it is about ustekinumab that m makes it so that this, this main treat, this kind of treat to target may not be as necessary with ustekinumab? Well, I think with this drug, this confirms what we're starting to learn is that the PK of this drug is really good. And it was manufactured in such a way that most patients have drug in their system before their maintenance dosing, and there's very little immunogenicity. So we're, you know, applying dose escalation approaches for use to kinumab based on what we've done with anti-TNS, which may not be an appropriate strategy. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't dose escalate, but when I look at studies like these, it really makes me pause before I dose escalate because it, dose escalation is expensive and I really wonder, am I doing the right thing by going to six weeks and four weeks? Now, they could have used drug levels here, and I think we'd agree that the drug should at least be there. Uh, some would say it should be above four and a half. You could argue if you had a really uh, robust drug level, are you going to get any benefit from going to six weeks or four weeks? So that is one wrinkle here that could have been added. And you know, maybe some of this dose escalation wasn't, wasn't necessary. Pragmatically, in real life, I think if this is your third biologic you're going to optimize people to the very end because you're running out of options and you don't have a lot of other choices for management. Whereas if this is the first biologic and the patient's not doing well, I'm not sure we should be waiting three to six months to try to optimize them, particularly if the drug level seems to be pretty good. What do you think? No, I agree. I, I think in a patient where this might be my, my first treatment, um, who really seems to be a primary non-responder to this therapy, I am not, based on these data, I am no longer trying to jump through hoops and dose optimize them. I, I'm really not. Um, you know, I think each scenario is a little bit different, but I think these show us, these data show us that the pharmacokinetics of this drug are pretty darn good. Um, and, and that's helpful to know, I, I think, um, particularly in a patient who still has other options. No, and I think the final bit, just to talk on ustekinumab um, before we do our summary and wrap up, Ray, because drive time is getting to an end. Um, and by the way, I still have to ask you um, your question, but before we go there, combination therapy. Do you use much combination therapy with ustekinumab? I mean, this in this study, it was not a part of it. Um, is that a, a problem? Is this something that we should be doing? Well, I think most of the post-hoc analyses show that the you know, continuing and immune suppressant is not isn't really associated with better outcomes. And we saw that with anti-TNFs as well. Um, when ustekinumab first launched, you know, we were, patients were all treatment refractory. And I think many of us were trying to maximize mechanisms of action because we didn't have really anywhere to go. So many patients begin, in the beginning of our practices with this drug wrong combination. Now, knowing what I know and with the emerging data, if I have a patient on immune suppressant, 
I, I won't continue it. I'll stop it unless I'm really trying to be aggressive with treat to target. And I want to leave it on just in case I'm going to go back to anti-TNF to prevent immunogenicity. And I'm certainly not using low dose for enhanced PK because I don't know how you can enhance the PK. Right. with drugs. So in short, I don't think it's essential unless you're worried that you might need to go back to an anti-TNF and want to prevent immunogenicity. No, I agree. I, I think that's a great take home point. Okay. So Ray, now before we wrap up, tell us something interesting about yourself that our audience may not know. You could stick with the athletics theme. I know you're an athlete yourself or go in a totally different direction. I'm going to go in a totally different direction because I bet that you don't even know this about me, Millie. So I'm actually a decent gardener. And I, two years ago, had a massive um, yield of cucumbers. And one of my friends gave me a pickling recipe. And apparently, I make very good pickles, as I've been told. So I bet you, you didn't even know that. I did not know that. That's, that's really good to know. So you've got to plant some zucchini next time. I, I make a really good zucchini bread. So, um, but the, that's, that's great to hear. Okay, let's wrap up. So I'm going to do one minute on um, Serene UC, your take-home points. Ray's going to do one minute on, um, on Stardust, and then you'll hopefully leave having, having gained that knowledge for your clinical practice and come back to see us on your next drive time. So just remember that high-dose adalimumab does not improve short-term outcomes um, for induction of ulcerative colitis. But that weekly adalimumab um, in integrated results does show some benefit over, Q or over every two-week adalimumab for maintenance of remission in UC. Ray, what about Stardust? In summary, Stardust um, showed that clinical outcomes in patients with Crohn's treated with ustekinumab are not superior using a treat-to-target approach compared to a standard of care approach. However, there is about a 10% endoscopic improvement in patients undergoing a treat-to-target approach without any decline in safety. Great. Well, with that, we will wrap up and we look forward to having you back on the next uh, IBD drive time and